This is Car Expert. There's probably a handful of new utes that I would be recommending to people as like a lifestyle vehicle, and I reckon this is probably one of them. What I want to see is not just for the Tonali to initially be successful, but I want Alfa Romeo to start seeing some more consistent success. I went around the roundabout at the end of the street here and did a U-turn, and I felt like I nearly ripped a tarmac off. It's like ridiculous, <laughs> and it's like 32, 33 grand. Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. Hello, William Stopford. Hello, Mandy. And g'day, Scott Collie. Hello, Mandy and Will. Now, uh, Paul mentioned in last week's podcast, Scully, that uh, you were off overseas gallivanting in a uh, a Cayman oh, RS, wasn't it? Yeah, so I'm heading and I'm very, very, very excited, not just because it's a Porsche, but because I'm getting on a plane to go overseas for the first time in two and a bit years. <laughs> um, yeah, Cayman GT4 RS, and the launch is in Portugal in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Nice. I actually thought you were going last week for some odd reason, but um, you have you driven one recently? So I I had driven a Cayman GT4 before, but yeah. before I went all the way to Portugal, I figured it would be really sensible to reacquaint myself with that car. Um, in the name of research and science and journalism and all those oh, of things, of course. Um, <laughs> because in all seriousness, it does seem really silly to go overseas and not have a good reference point for the car you're driving. Um, But it was the longest I've spent with a Cayman. The the last drive was very brief uh, and I managed to take it out some really interesting roads around Melbourne, um, use the rear wing as a coffee table, which I feel every journalist should do because that's what they used to do in the magazines when I was growing up (laughs) and just generally enjoy the fact that it's a a naturally aspirated mid-engine car that revs to 8,000. It's it's brilliant fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and, and I can't wait to see how they then improve on that again because the GT4 is not exactly short on like fun. It makes a great noise. It handles beautifully. Cranking that all up to the next level is going to be pretty special, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we'll, we'll stick on the, the Porsche topic. Um, you may or some people may or may not know I have a replica of a Porsche 356 and uh, a little while ago, before COVID, I had a wedding hire business where I, you know, would would drive grooms or brides around in, in the speedster. Um, but I folded it during COVID because, like every other business, it just failed. Um, but my info can still be found online, and I can't obviously get rid of it. And I got this message from this guy uh, a couple of days ago, saying, "Oh, I've got this wedding. It's ironically on my birthday. Um, you know, can you can you help us out? I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to use it." And I said, look, I'm sorry, I don't have all the relevant uh, hire licenses anymore. I don't have public liability insurance. I'm just not interested in doing it anymore. I'm so sorry. But he was so, so persistent. And he said, oh, okay, then, well, is it possible that I can hire it and drive it for the day? I'm thinking, um, that's even worse than actually me driving it. <laughs> You've really got to trust a stranger to get into your own pride and joy. And uh, I said, no. He said, well, can you drive me? Uh, no. Uh, can we use it for photos? I said, no, it's it's all under insurance. I'm sorry, I can't do it. You know what his next question was? Can I buy your car? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. Wow. I couldn't believe it. So did you sell him the car? <laughs> never. Uh, okay. I've, oh. I've never had anyone ask me that off the back of a wedding hire question. So, like, Mandy, what you should have done, because it sounds like this was a man of means, didn't sound yeah. short on a dollar if you wanted the car in the photos and was willing to buy it. <laughs> I think you should have maybe just said, look, if you can pay for my insurance and my business listing and all that sort of thing, then, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Could have gotten something out of it. But also, it's my birthday. <laughs> well, yeah, there is and that. And uh, it was a Saturday and I just, oh, you know, I just can't be bothered with that anymore because uh, I've used it in about maybe three or four weddings um, and almost every time it got damaged. And I just, like, I think it was a lady's high heel went through the seat one day. Oh. Someone opened up the door way too quickly. It chipped the side of it onto a brick wall and I just I cringe every time. So I thought, nope. No, you know what? I'm over this. Wait, so. just just to clarify, how many people does this Porsche One passenger. Sit? Okay, so is it – I haven't been to a wedding in a while, so this is your COVID amnesia here. <laughs> when people rent a car for a wedding, is it just the bride that's getting driven up to, to the uh, – It's both. Not obviously in the same car, but – 
a lot of people can do whatever they want these days. Some people don't even have wedding cars, yeah, um, or, or nice wedding cars. So, um, yeah, I've driven uh, mostly grooms, um, a couple of brides. Um, their hair gets rather messed up. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I mean, if I was a bride, I wouldn't want to be in in a convertible. If I was yeah. a groom, I wouldn't want to be in a convertible. <laughs> I don't want my hair messed up. <laughs> I know. All right, let's get stuck into this week's show. Over to you, Scully. The 2022 Mazda CX-60 plug-in hybrid is coming to Australia. Just when you thought there weren't enough SUVs with the same name as other SUVs, Mazda comes in to prove you wrong, Mandy. (laughs) Um, Mazda has already confirmed that the CX-60, which is one of the products it's building on its new, more luxurious, longitudinal engine rear-wheel drive platform, is coming to Australia. And it had said that we'd get normal petrol power, mild hybrid petrol power, and then plug-in hybrid power in its range. We didn't know if it was coming to Australia or not. We now know that, yes, it is in fact coming to Australia with a plug-in hybrid, and that system will have 223 kilowatts. Beyond that, we have no details, which makes it a little bit difficult. But some people have suggested it's actually the powertrain from the Toyota RAV4 Prime which is part of a, uh, a relationship Mazda has with Toyota in the USA. That's not being confirmed, but the outputs do kind of match up. Otherwise, we're just going to have to wait and see. The CX-60 has also been teased. We've actually seen photos of this car leaked previously. The teaser images do nothing to say that the photos we've published in full were wrong. So it looks a little bit like a Mazda CX-5, but there's some more complex detailing going on up the front. The LED light signature runs into the grille and there's some sharper creases and stuff. It's definitely a Mazda, but it does look a little bit more interesting and premium, which is the point of all these products. I've got to love when a car is leaked in full and then a manufacturer just goes ahead with this <laughs> really slim teaser. It's like, we already know what it looks like. It looks pretty nice. <laughs> Maybe just show more of the car. <laughs> you, you would think so, but I would imagine there's someone getting paid a lot of money to schedule those Facebook posts. So, you wouldn't want to cut <laughs> yes. them out of a job. That's um, true. The CX-60 is the first in what we're expecting to be quite a long line of more premium Mazdas. We know there's going to be a CX-70, a CX-80, and a CX-90. And the CX-60 and the CX-80 are narrow-body cars aimed at countries like Europe and Japan. The 70 and the 90 are wider-body cars aimed at the USA. We don't know which ones will come to Australia, but at this stage, our best bet is that obviously the CX-60 will come. And then potentially the CX-80 or 90 or both, because at the moment we actually get the CX-8, which is a narrow body seven-seater for Japan. And we also get the US aimed CX-9, which is a bit bigger, but fundamentally shares a lot of the bones. So we're expecting to learn more in the coming months. And Mazda is drip feeding us this information because it is quite a big move for the brand. Um, Fingers crossed this CX-60 looks as good inside as it does outside and i don't just mean the headlight i mean head to car expert and have a look at the full photo um and then the rest of the the cars follow suit because it's been a little while since we've seen a brand really make a convincing move up market and it seems like mazda's doing it not by putting more leather on its cars or by investing in fancy new badges but, but by investing in really quality chassis bones and engines and that sort of thing and then building the car around it so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out And uh, Mazda has also said, don't expect these new SUVs to uh, spell the end of existing SUV models. So, we know that the CX-5 has just received a little bit of an update. So, it's presumably going to be sticking around for a little bit, even though we've got a similarly sized CX-60 coming along. So, Mazda hasn't necessarily said, hey, CX-8 and CX-9 are biting the dust and uh, CX-80 and CX-90 are going to replace them. So, one, we don't know exactly what... um, of the four SUVs we're going to be getting beyond the CX-60. But two, we also don't know what of Mazda's existing SUV lineup is going to go. Confused? <laughs> we, yeah, I mean, we're, we're you a say bit- that's confusing, Will, but can you imagine being a multi-franchise car dealer and have someone coming in looking for either a Mazda CX-8, CX-9, CX-80, CX-90, or maybe a Volvo XC60, <laughs> or maybe a Volvo XC90? <laughs> I just, my head hurts at the thought. We're, but we're also we're also we're a bit of a unique market for Mazda um, because as you mentioned before we do get CX eight and CX nine I think we are if not the only market then one of the very few markets that does get both so because Mazda does quite well here relatively speaking um, we kind of get uh, I guess 
pick of the litter in that respect. Um, and it's also worth flagging, I don't know if you already mentioned it, Scott, but in addition to this um, plug-in hybrid four-cylinder engine, Mazda has developed new inline six-cylinder petrol and diesel engines for this new large architecture. So that's very exciting. So it's you're right, it's not just a little bit more leather and some new badges. Mazda is, has spent a lot of money, presumably, on, on this new platform, new engines, four new models it's 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 very ambitious um i'm very very excited to see um what happens because last time mazda kind of went into this premium territory that was with unos uh and that and the aborted uh, amati mark that was supposed to rival lexus so let's hope this does a little bit better than than those two do you think that this should have been an ev as opposed to a plug-in hybrid no, I don't. Um, I can understand Mazda doing an electric vehicle in that space, and I think it's very important for their credentials to keep investing in that going forward. But I also think that for Mazda to jump straight from making like very nicely appointed, but what are fundamentally mainstream family cars, to making what would essentially be a BMW iX3 competitor, depending on how it was priced, mm. is probably a bridge too far. So... By going the plug-in hybrid, I mean, for one, it does give them more options in places like Europe where they're not nearly as strong as Australia, but it also lets them bridge the gap between 2.5-litre turbo, you know, well-appointed but still mainstream cars like the CX-9, and then the really top-end stuff or maybe an electric vehicle down the track. It's, it's a good technology flagship without forgetting their roots. Yeah. Nicely said. Okay, more SUV news, Will. The 2023 Alfa Romeo Tonali has been revealed. Oh, it's a pretty thing too. It is pretty. It's very pretty. Uh, it's not really surprising what it looks like, although I was still, you know, you know, pleasantly impressed when I saw the photos of it. Um, so the Tonali was actually previewed as a concept back in 2019 and then some leaked photos of what appeared to be the production model came out literally the end of 2019. So, we've had a very, very good idea of what this car is going to look like well ahead of time. Um, but now, Alfa Romeo has released information about, you know, what acts, what actually it's like under the skin, um, which is obviously quite important. Um, so, it uh, will arrive uh, in Australia in the first half of 2023. And, and this, look, this is obviously going to be a very important model for, uh, for Alfa Romeo, not just here, but in markets like Europe, in markets like the US, uh, because it'll be a new entry point for the brand. Um, the Juliet is gone. The Mito's been dead a few years. Uh, so, this this enters the segment uh, where things like the Volvo XC40 and the BMW X1 compete. Um, so, um, it is about 157 mils shorter than the Stelvio, just to give you an idea of how it's sized. Um, and it will be coming uh, here with a turbocharged 1.5 litre millicycle petrol engine with a 48 volt mild hybrid system, um, but only front wheel drive. Uh, so total power is quoted as 120 kilowatts. Now, there are other powertrains that will be available in other markets. Um, so there's a, a 190 kilowatt petrol engine uh, that's apparently left hand drive only. Uh, and there's also going to be a plug in hybrid, which will actually be Alfa Romeo's first electrified model, um, but it isn't available for us for the time being and that's got 205 kilowatts of power claimed 60 kilometers of electric range and a zero to 100 time of 6.2 seconds so it's pretty quick it's going to be i mean for one fantastic to see alfa romeo competing with a very modern product in a segment people are really buying cars um it's also going to be interesting to see if it really gives it the chance that this car deserves because Often the case with brands that have lower volumes is they have fantastic product overseas, and I'm thinking maybe like a Citroen, for example. But because of the volumes they sell in Australia, they can only bring in expensive single variants, and they only have limited supply and limited parts and that sort of thing. I don't think the challenge with the Tonali is going to be making people want one because it looks awesome. The interior looks like a massive step on from even the Stelvio and the Giulia. The challenge is going to be getting it to Australia in a spec that makes it competitive with uh, with BMW and with Audi. And it's also going to be convincing people to buy an Alfa Romeo because Alfa still has a three-year warranty, not a five-year warranty. And it still has a very limited dealer network. I, it's one of those cars that I really want to do well, but 
given we're not getting the best tech, we still don't know, obviously, what the range will look like because we're quite a ways out. I'm not ready yet to say it's the car that makes Alfa Romeo a thing in Australia again, but my fingers are crossed. This is the thing with Alfa Romeo, right? It's one of those brands, I think, uh, probably Jaguar um, and to a lesser extent, like Cadillac and Infiniti or, or other luxury brands where it's always like, oh, well, this is the model that's going to turn things around. It's, oh, it's Alfa Romeo's rebirth. It's a relaunch. And you should see some of the, the press coming out of Europe about, oh, this is such an important car for Alfa Romeo. And because the Giulia and the Stelvio are fantastic cars dynamically. They look good. Their interiors are all right. Um, they do a lot of things well, but they have not met sales expectations for um, what was FCA and what's now part of Stellantis. Um, so, this is a model that's a little bit less ambitious because we understand it actually rides on a version of the Jeep Compasses platform, which I will say not the worst bones to start from because the Compass is the Compass's chassis isn't bad. It's unfortunately just got a pretty dud petrol engine here. Um, but um, this this isn't as ambitious as, as the Stelvio and Giulia, which were developed on a clean sheet platform. They were meant to take on the, the best of the Germans dynamically. This is a little bit less ambitious. Um, but it, it seems to tick all the boxes for an SUV in this segment in that it seems to have the right technology. It's got nice looking interior. It's got suitably premium styling. Um, so... I'm very curious to see how it goes here. Um, I think Alfa Romeo needs to resolve a few things here if it wants to come even close to matching uh, other premium brands in terms of sales. And that's things like the warranty, which is the worst in in, in this part of the market. Um, It's also a dealership network that really is not that expansive either. Um, But this is a very important new model for them. It looks like, uh, initially speaking, they seem to have done a good job with it. So, let's see how it drives. Let's see how it's priced and and then we can make our conclusions. (laughs) Tune in next week for our Saving Alfa Romeo special. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I, 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 I... You know, Alfa Romeo has just had these ebbs and flows and they've had periods um, where it's like, oh, God, you know, why are they still around? I think maybe the early 90s is an example where they were kind of teetering on the brink there. And then they seem to kind of have a burst of success and then it just kind of fades away. And it's it's a bit like Jaguar in that respect as well. So, what I want to see is not just for the Tonali to initially be successful, but I want it to see Alfa Romeo actually build its its model lineup out and start seeing some more consistent success. So, Mm. let's see. Absolutely. Well, another car that we would like to see uh, become successful here in Australia, Scully, is the 2022 Cupra Leon, and we have the details for this. We sure do. So, Cupra is the Volkswagen Group's sporty Spanish sub-brand. Just when you thought they couldn't have any more brands, they throw another one in the mix. But they're based on Seat. But instead of doing the normal cars and the sporty ones, Cupra is just the sporty ones. It's like a pure GTI or RS brand. The Leon is the car that in their lineup that I think I'm most interested in because it's golf-sized, but it's going to offer four different engines and only a couple of them are actually currently available in Australia at the moment. So, the base model will have 140 kilowatts and 320 newton meters. It's the same engine you get in the Skoda Octavia Limited Edition. The next step up is the same engine as the Golf GTI. It's a two-litre turbocharged engine with 180 kilowatts and 370 newton metres. The one above that is something that Volkswagen Group has really struggled with in Australia. It's a plug-in hybrid, and it's got 180 kilowatts and 400 newton metres, and in Europe, a claimed battery-only range of more than 60 kilometres. It's the powertrain that's in the Golf GTE overseas, but Volkswagen hasn't been able to get it to Australia till now. And then finally, and the one that I really want to drive, is the Leon VZX. And it's got a version of the Golf R engine with 221 kilowatts and 400 newton meters, but it's front-wheel drive only. So, it's a real sort of, it's a real racy front-wheel drive Volkswagen Group product with more go than the Golf GTI. All of these cars are going to be really well-specced at launch. So, there's a couple of options packages because, of course, there is, but... They all ride on at least 18-inch alloy wheels. They all have interesting interior specs with digital instruments, satellite navigation, wireless phone charging. Even the base model's got a heated steering wheel and tri-zone climate. You can pay a little bit more to get leather bucket seats with heating and memory and, and power, and you can also pay more to get an electric sunroof. But I think on paper, these cars are really well-specced. And if Cooper can get the price right, and it's said that price is going to be one of its big selling points, 
then there's going to be some real appeal in these cars, especially the Leon VZX, which has got a petrol blue interior with copper stitching. Oh, yes. I was just about really, to say. Really cool buttons on the steering wheel and obviously that powertrain. Have a look at carexpert.com, but it's it's a really interesting spec we're getting in Australia. It is a absolutely beautiful interior. It does bother me that it's got those awful touch sliders that the Golf has, but it looks yeah. stunning. And, and this is the thing about Seat and Cooper products for, for, you know, decades now, maybe a brief break in the 2000s, they've always been so much more stylish than uh, comparable Volkswagen models. And um, there's also some interesting colors available too. So, Cooper has released all these press photos where all the cars are in gray, actually quite a nice gray, I will say. Um, but there's this like matte blue, also called petrol blue that's available and i loathe matte paint it's the worst but this actually looks really freaking cool yeah yeah very, and very copper cool. accents copper accents on the wheels too it's this is Love this it. is it, it looks so much better than a golf and I mean, i'm not knocking a golf here but it looks so much better and if somebody is looking for a hot hatch um and they don't want to have just another golf. They want something a little bit different, a little bit more stylish. This is um, what they should be looking at. Mm. Yeah. And uh, lastly, Scully, well, if you ever wanted to own a Porsche, you can do it for maybe a day or a week or whatever because uh, Porsche Australia has introduced a rental program. It sure has. Um, don't go expecting any Hertz-style deals, though, because it is a rental program, but it is not cheap, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Porsche does this in a few countries already. It's, it's spread around some European countries. It's in North America and also in Japan. And the idea is that there are lots of people out there who want to drive or experience a Porsche, but they can't afford to actually buy one, which is pretty much all of us. So this rental program gives you access to a 718 Boxster S, a Taycan 4S, or a 911 Carrera S, and you can rent for a day, a weekend, or a week. Um, we're going to play a quick guessing game, and Will, I know you've read this story already, so don't you jump in. Mandy, how much do you think it costs to rent the 718 Cayman for a day? 500? Just to be clear, it's the 718 Boxstar. Oh, 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 oh. Maybe I'll double my money. No, think of the name, the 718. Oh, oh. <laughs> are you kidding me? So I read the article and I didn't even notice that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's $718 for a day in the Boxster. It's $911 for a day in the 911, <laughs> uh, which I actually I love because the Taycan and the 911 have same pricing for a weekend and a week. But Porsche's added $12 to the price of the day of the 911 just so it can have that nice round number, which I think is pretty cool. Um, there are some caveats on this, of course. They're not just going to let anyone loose in a 911. You've got to be 27 years old. You need to have held your driver's license for at least five years. And you also need a $6,000 like credit, essentially. So they don't take six grand from you. You don't have to rock up with a duffel bag. But they will check that you have that available on your credit card before you go in case you do damage the car. So... If you are planning to do a Days of Thunder style race in rental cars, I wouldn't recommend this, but I think it's a really cool thing you can do for, I mean, either yourself, if you've always wanted to drive one, but also, you know, for people who are coming up to big birthdays, you've always wanted to enjoy a Porsche, for example. Yeah. I can see the appeal in giving someone a day in a 911, Is provided there, they put their credit card down. Are there any, uh, like, rental agencies that, that currently offer exotic cars like this? Because I know Turo doesn't really have a presence here. That's what I've used in the States to, to rent cool stuff. But is there anybody in Australia that does this? So, I've just had a look on Google and there are some places like Lux Sports Car Rentals. That is not an ad because I have no idea if they're any good or not. <laughs> um, there's a few places around Melbourne that will do it. Uh, I think the difference is partly that, I mean, this is coming direct from Porsche um, and obviously... As much as I love the idea of putting down a big deposit on a car with a company I've never heard of and I've only just Googled, doing it through Porsche would make me feel a little more secure. Mm. Um, It's also unique in that, yeah, it's not often manufacturers are willing to lend their own cars to people or that they even think they need to necessarily. Because if you're Mazda, if you want to buy the car, you take it for a test drive, maybe you keep it for 24 hours, but they're not just going to let you rent one. So, I think it's Porsche being quite clever and and letting people experience the brand and building the image among non-owners. But I also think it's Porsche being, you know, quite clever and just finding another way to keep the cars it has sitting at dealers, you know, maybe demonstrators or or the specific rental fleet in use and, and, and becoming a source of income. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody renting a car is not necessarily any more likely to abuse the crap out of a car than somebody who works for a company or somebody who works in the media. Like, everyone, you know, you get access to a I Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot As of people out there. rented cars before, Will, I firmly disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> More news can be found at carexpert.com.au. Chris Atko Atkinson, lovely to have you back again. Great to be back again. A bit, a bit of a regular now. I think so too. We're going to talk about some two really, really cool, exciting little hatches, the Hyundai i20N and the Volkswagen Golf GTI. But let's start off with the i20N first. How did you find it around the track? Uh, well, we already had a bit of a preview at the N Festival, I think, last year um, with the prototype they had there. Um, and I actually got to take William for a, a run in it as well. So yes, you did. Um, <laughs> that, that was, uh, it was actually eye opening because it was. Um, a big step up on where the i30N was. So, um, and it was, and that's sort of behind their philosophy going forward is that they were kept kept pushing the boundaries and how can they improve their cars. And it's funny how the the i20N because it was the next one up, the i30N was a, a step forward, and then conversely, the new i30N then picked up its game. So they're they're really pushing themselves along and. Um, I would say it was one of the highlights of the year um, and to get in the production version and basically see no difference apart from like probably just tyre condition um, compared to the prototype, like the times were in the end quite close. Um, that's promising as well. Like it felt almost identical. Um, and it, it's uh, when, when I go to write this story, it's going to be about I, I drove like four laps every lab differently, trying different things, throwing it around, sliding, missing apexes, doing this. I did like within a tenth every lap. Like it just didn't matter what I did. I could just drive no. it how I, however I wanted and I could just throw it around. I could rotate it in the middle of the corner, um, get on the gas. I could slide the rear out and it just didn't didn't really matter and I just could get away with anything. And, and it gave you that confidence. It gave you the feedback as a driver. Um and that's actually quite rare these days. Um, so it's nice to see a company heading that way with their their ideas. At Co, although it's sort of old-fashioned fun in the way that it talks to you and you can throw it around, there's quite a lot going on with the i20N. Did it take you long to work out where you wanted all the different settings and whether you wanted rev matching and that sort of thing? Or did you just chuck it in N mode and go for it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I had already driven the prototype, I just threw it straight in N mode. The only thing I actually don't like is the rev matching. Um, and, and I think I, that? I'm so used to doing myself, uh, I actually find it like I, I want control over exactly how many revs I want, when and where and how I want it. I can, I can like sneak a bit of engine braking if I want by just like releasing the clutch a little bit early or whatever, you know, where it's dictating exactly what you want every time. So that's probably my only negative. Um, and I actually ran with it on. I was like, we were in a bit of a rush at the track um, and it didn't bother me too much, but it wasn't, just wasn't ideal in my situation where I'm so used to, I can heel toe myself anyway. I know how to do that. Um, but if you're not doing if you're not used to that, some people love it, absolutely love it. So I think for 99.9% of the population who aren't used to heel towing every day, um, then, then it's great. Um, and setting wise, yeah, I just went straight to end mode, turn traction control and stability control off. Um, cause I had confidence. I had no issue. Like I never thought I was going to have a, a moment in the car. So I just went straight to all out setting. Um, and it's quite cool how it comes alive. Um, like when you throw that end mode on and, um, the, the engine note changes a little and it just, the game, the game changes. So it's quite cool. Yeah. How did you find it handling the, the corners? Uh, it's, it's excellent and really good on bumps as well. Some of the cars, and I'm, I'd love to sit down with some of the engineers that do the damper work. Um, when you ride on the curbs, load it on the curb, certain cars will just handle it no problems. Like they can um, deal with the oscillation. Other cars, the, the, the suspension just collapses. Um, mm. And to be honest, even the TCR car didn't like the curb. So, it's not a specifically a, a road car thing. Even the TCR car, I put it on the curb and it, and it didn't really love it. The, we had the Golf GTI the same day um, and it didn't love the curbs as much. Um, and cars like uh, Yaris, um, GR Yaris Rally and the 
the standard one, WRX STI, Hyundai, I'm naming rally brands for whatever reason, but um, <laughs> you drive and they're quite heavy curbs on the outside of, say, turn one and two, um, and they handle them no worries at all. It doesn't really matter. Whereas other cars, you hit the curbs, it, it bounces a little bit um, and then just steps sideways on you. Um, and it's the damper um, not controlling the bigger inputs, like not being able to deal with that flow, th- that, that um, rate of movement in the damper, basically. So, as somebody who um, wants a sporty, smallish hatchback and maybe wants to take it on the track once in a while, do you think it's it's worth stepping up to the i30N still? Because um, you mentioned that it had been improved. Or do you think the i20N is just really good kind of performance bang for your buck? I think they're both... Um, it's, a, it's actually a really tough question and I've thought about it a bit myself. Um, I... I think the i30 ends a, uh, a great car and then the new generation one, the update one, which we drove the manual recently, was a, a big step forward and a lot more like the i20N. But I, I don't know what it is about that i20N. It, it, um, I, they're, they're both like if you want that bigger car and, and the space, I can, I can see the reason behind the i30N. But the, yes, the i30N is faster, a bit more powerful, things like that. But the the i20n is just great value. Like it's the performance it's got out there. I, I we can't say too much because we haven't had many of its exact competition on the track. I'd love to get the um, the Ford. Uh, what's it called? Fiesta, um, Fiesta ST. Yeah, um, on there and mm. yeah, like things like that to see where it really stands. But the fact that it's um, still held its own in front of. Um, quite a few other hot hatches and it's actually not that much slower than i30n it just it just seems to be just a standout little weapon that's a lot of fun and um and I, even when i drove it around for a week or so on the streets like it suited it suits a manual it it i get frustrated driving a manual on the road it's one of the few cars i've just enjoyed actually driving a manual because you don't have crazy power you're not like like um, you can drive it hard. I, f- I went around the roundabout at the end of the street here and, and did a U-turn like just to, to swing back around and I felt like I nearly ripped the tarmac off the, the road. Like it's like <laughs> ridiculous and it's like 32, 33 grand and you, you're just what? having an absolute blast and like very rarely can you say that in uh, in modern times and, uh, mm. and the way prices are going. Like it's actually really, really surprising and satisfying to have that in a car. That's so cool. So, uh, also the same day, I think you drove the the Volkswagen Golf GTI. Was that just as fun? Uh, it's it's <laughs> funny. I I imagine, and I actually probably haven't driven it from memory. Like an old early GTI is what you imagine the i twenty N is these days. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like yeah. that's my picture where the uh, yeah. the G because I hopped straight out of one into the other, and I to be fair to the GTI, I hadn't spent much time with it on the road, so. Um, compared to the i20n so it was a bit of a disadvantage but um i just felt a bit disconnected like it's such an it's a nice car like a really nice car and comfortable and finished well and looks looks good and classy but it it just lacked the um the feedback and i just didn't quite know where i was it was just that little bit too comfortable that little bit too softened um I could, you can see the underlying thought there, like late in the corner when I turned everything off, all the traction control and stability control, you can still get it to rotate it, but it's not like I'm fully in control of when it's happening and it's like, this is what I want you to do and do it now. It's like it's like sort of a little bit of a surprise sometimes and, and that disconnection as a driver, just you just lose a little bit of confidence to really push to the, to the limit. Is it as easy to change and, and customize settings in the Golf GTI as it is in the <laughs> i20N? <laughs> I don't know the answer to this. I'm leading <laughs> I did park on the track for a while, like trying to turn off ESC. And, I'm like, and I actually found it accidentally. I'm like, how do I turn this off? And, and then I'm on like a YouTube clip, like in the middle of the oh track, trying to find out. To be fair, that's my own uh, poor research, I guess, rather than blaming the car. But... I've said it in nearly every story that I love having the buttons on the wheel. If you're going to be a performance car, have your mode select on the wheel. Um, Hyundai do it well. BMW do it well. Um, and just have that option there. Just go, bang, I want to go fast. Here's a button. Press the button. Like, Don't make it hard for us as drivers, especially racing drivers. We're not the, the cleverest ones out there. So just hit the button. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let us go fast. So, and then when I don't want to do that, I just press the button and I turn turn it off. And and I think 
making it simple, like uh, the way the mode button was on the dash, it all looked nice and sleek. But then I'm like, I forgot where the mode button was and I'm looking for that and then trying to turn the ESC off. And um, definitely, there's definitely easier ways to do it. Um, and I don't know why they try and hide it so much. Yeah, usability is, is not a Volkswagen Golf strong suit with a market, I'll tell you. There is someone very clever in Germany who's crying, though, at this feedback, going, it looks so good, though. <laughs> you can go and see it. Um, at Co, the, the most recent GTI models are known as being really good all-rounders because they're quick when you want them to be, but they're also very comfortable on the road. Did you notice that the car was hampered in any way by the fact that it is quite a capable, comfortable road car or could you still get what you wanted out of it on track? Uh, no, it, it does take the, the gloss off the track appeal, to be honest. Um, but how many of the buyers are taking it on the track? That's the, the thing for um, a manufacturer, I guess. Um, not a lot, but I, I think it loses that edge, the appeal as well, like uh, – Yes, it's comfortable, but I think people, without realizing it, notice the difference um, of a car. So, I'd love, I need to write a story on why we test on the track because a lot of people go, I don't drive on the track, blah, blah, blah. But there's so much, so much the feedback you get just driving on the road, you realize where that comes from when you take the car on the track and you push it to a limit. Um, and you get a sense of it on the road. But you go to the track and I can, I can then articulate it in a story of like why, why do we feel so good in X car compared to another car? Um, and on the road, it's more just a subtle feeling that something's just missing. Like as nice as it is, it just doesn't have that, that little X factor. Um, and, and that's it for me. And I, there are a few manufacturers out there still pushing for that. Um, Toyota are obviously thinking about it. Hyundai are thinking about it. Um, I'd say BMW are thinking about it, um, but not everyone's got that thought process that the driver still um, deserves some thought of what he should feel, or he or she should feel as a, a a person in control of that vehicle. Yeah. All right, God, we could probably talk about this for another half an hour. I reckon with these two cars, <laughs> they're, they're quite opposite cars, but they, they still have a lot of fun uh, behind the wheel. Yeah, very um, similar cars, and actually yeah. did very similar. Well, sorry, very um, very different cars, but very similar time at the end of the day. We did like um, without giving really? too much away. Um, almost, I'd say almost identical lap times. Um, wow! So. so um, sort of goes to show, yes, the, the i20N is a lot of bang for your back buck when it's going up against the Golf GTI um, with a decent price gap. Um, but then you get so much more um, comfort and luxury um, for mm. everyday use than the GTI. So it's um, whatever you want, I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can't wait to read those reviews at Car Experts. Chris Atkinson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks to see you guys again. Now, Aussies love their Utes, that's no secret, and it seems recently they're starting to see more appeal in the Mazda BT50. James Wong has driven the latest new top spec, BT50 SP, and he joins us now. Hello, j Hi, guys. <laughs> Apologies for the now- technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, airplane mode doesn't work with the internet. Um, no. <laughs> now, it, it, it looks like buyers are taking notice of the BT50 at the moment. Um, well, obviously, the, the generational update last year was such a big change um, and not by taking the underpinnings of the D-Max, like everyone loves the new D-Max and it's a massive overhaul of that car and the old BT50 was a pretty old dog of a thing as well so it's just such a complete change that i think um it's it now offers some of the best tech in the segment when it comes to safety and infotainment and all that kind of stuff it looks great people love mazda's suvs and the way that the the new bz50 has been designed to look like you know a ute bodied cx9 i think really resonates with people um mazda reported uh, the best sales year ever for bc50 in 2021 they sold like i think 13 or 14,000 vehicles and they're aiming even higher this year and they're trying to get to about 19,000. So they they exceeded their own forecasts, which is um, obviously for any manufacturer is a great thing so that they knew that they were going to do well with it, but they did much better than they expected. And with this new SP and then the new XS models at the bottom of the range, they're just hoping to continue and expand the model range, expand the appeal of the 
of the BT50 nameplate. Um, so yeah, it, like you know, I I it's funny that you say Aussies love Utes. I'm actually one of probably a few Aussies that actually hates Utes. Generally, I don't like dual cabs, and I don't like <laughs> yes. that. So, I don't like that so many parents and stuff are putting their kids in them because I'm like, it's a bloody workhorse. Just if you get a Ute, it's either to tow or it's to carry stuff in the tray, not just to you know yep. um, show off to your mates because you want a truck. Um, so, but this new one is one of the few, there's probably a handful of new utes that I would be recommending to people as like a lifestyle vehicle. And I reckon this is probably one of them. So JWO, we have already reviewed a few different BT50 grades on Car Expert. What's different for 2022 yep. and what were you testing? Um, so 2022, they've brought in the SP, which is um, sort of, te- it's technically the flagship, but it's also not the flagship. So that Thunder that Paul reviewed last year is sort of like a massive accessories package that's technically the most expensive BT50 out there. But this new SP is actually a factory-made flagship, so it comes as is. So it gets um, a new, in- a different interior. So it's got a driftwood highlights, which is like a, a light brown. Um, it gets like a black pack on the outside and a few other, um, you know, little upgrades. Like that's got like one of those roller um, covers for the tray, like you get in a, a range of wild track, that sort of thing. Um, and then also at the bottom of the range, they've brought in the XS, which um, is available in single cab chassis, double cab chassis and dual cab pickup. Uh, body styles in both 4x2 and 4x4. So even though it's one trim level and one new engine, it's uh, there's quite a few different variants there. And that has the the smaller 1.9 litre turbo diesel that um, was also recently introduced in the D-Max. I got about a half an hour drive of that on this launch, which is probably why I wasn't able to put out a full review on it, um, just because I didn't really get enough time with it and test out the capabilities. Um, but... Yeah, so that's that's basically what's new for the for the model year, and then also they've um, changed the lane support system, like I used to do with the D Max, where you can basically hard press that steering wheel button and turn it all off if it's too much for you. Because I know that that's a common complaint that some people find it a little bit too intrusive. I know you only had a very brief amount of time with the one point nine liter engine, but in that in that short space of time, did you notice a significant drop off in performance compared to the three liter? Uh, no, not really. Um, it's actually pretty adequate for what it is. And the only real difference I notice is the sound. It's a little bit more high pitched and clattery, which obviously as a base model, it's not as much of a problem. Um, but it got along fine. You just have to, it's sort of, it just didn't have that low end shove that the three liter has. So the three liter is quite almost effortless to the point where it's almost lazy. Um, whereas the 1.9 has to work a little bit harder and it'll, it'll sort of keep you between like two and 3000 revs, um, to keep you in the, the torque band. So it, it drops off about a hundred Newton meters and, um, about 40 kilowatts or 35. Um, so it's a little bit down on power, but for a base model ute, and if you're not carrying stuff around that much, it's fine for what it is. Um, Joey, does that bring the, the price of entry down then? Yeah, so the, the 1.9 litre models are pretty much the equivalent spec of an XT, which is the base 3 litre. And um, in terms of features and equipment, everything, they all get the same safety systems and the infotainment, whatever, but it's about three grand cheaper. So I think now you've got like a low 30s starting point um, for the base XS single cab chassis, but it also doesn't come with a manual either because they didn't um, foresee enough demand for that spec. So they've just yeah, it's like thirty three grand for a for a base one, which is about three grand cheaper. Yeah. So you've said the BT fifty is one of the few Utes on the market that you would recommend as like a lifestyle Ute. Why why would you recommend it as a lifestyle Ute over um, other Utes? Uh, well, first of all, the safety performance of the BT50 and the D-Max is probably a big selling point. Historically, um, dual cab utes um, and commercial vehicles in general have been quite behind the passenger segments in terms of safety and you know technology. So one of the biggest upgrades that came for D-Max and BT50 as part of that generational update is like the full suite of driver assistance systems and like, you know, adaptive cruise control, AEB with pedestrian cyclist assist. Um, it's got blind spot monitoring, rear cross traffic alert, and every single model has it, which is Mazda has to be commended um, for doing that across the lineup, it's, it's even on a, a low 30s 
um, a low 30 grand budget. Um, so that's the main thing, I think. And, and now, like the interior of the BT50 is to the point now where it's not, you don't feel like you're shortchanged at the 60 to 70 grand mark. Um, it, it's still obviously a, a ute, so there are hard plastics around and whatever, but the build quality feels solid. There are the, the, the leather and the, the materials that you touch are quite nice. And you know, you've got a, an infotainment system that works well. It's probably not Ford Ranger Sync 3 level good, but, you know, you can actually use it as a family car and not, you know, it's not that rough or it's not that noisy because it's like, you know, on the on the highway, it's very refined. We drove it over so many different surfaces and it was really quiet and comfy. So I think that's really wise. So D-Max and BT50, uh, two of them, and I would say the Ranger would be the third um, just because the three of them, even though the Ranger's a bit old now, they've all, they're all pretty well decked out in terms of safety and technology so that, you know, it's not you're not spending 60 grand on a workhorse that isn't really safe for having kids in the back, for example, like some other um, vehicles in that segment. So, JWO, with 2022, the BT50 has also gained a new SP trim level. It's got some really interesting interior bits and pieces, but it is also a lot more expensive than the old GT. Is that a car you'd be looking at or do you think that maybe it's not a necessary addition to the range? Yeah, so the, the SP presents well. Like it obviously looks cool and, you know, you get the black pack and you get the, the driftwood interior. I just think it's probably not worth the, I think it's a six grand upcharge on the equivalent GT. Uh, it's a lot of money for, you know, gloss black bits on the outside and then a different cut of leather on the bolsters. So I think um, if it was cheaper and the, the price gap was maybe one or two grand, it would probably be one of my picks because I guess if you, it, it sort of strikes me as like a Mercedes X class replacement in in terms of like being in terms of the design it's a lot sleeker and and more like suv like it's got more of that luxurious focus on the interior um and it obviously comes decked out with everything that you most things that you can think of which you know five years ago when we were just budding young journo scott that utes would never have even considered having such features um so i think it's probably just too much more because the gt is already such a good you like it's it's got pretty much all the same features just missing some of the um aesthetic enhancements that the that the sp brings so i don't know i i rated it i think it got it like an eight or just below an eight just mainly because on the value front um because the the, the you go about a couple of grand down the range and get a gt or even an xtr they're both so well fitted out that you probably just don't need to spend that extra money James, what are your thoughts on this black and driftwood interior colorway? Because I recall somebody on the podcast saying not too long ago, I can't remember which one of you it was, that black and brown should never be seen together. But this actually looks pretty good. Yeah, I, it probably wasn't me. I think that's Scott because he says that a lot about every Mazda product, how they always have like a contrasting <laughs> color in the interior because like CX-30 has like random blue um, things through it and that doesn't always work depending on the exterior color that you have. Um, but yeah, I actually didn't mind it. I think that it was it was well done um, in the sense that it sort of matched other parts of the cabin. They put it on the, they put the same color on like the padded knee rests along the center console. They've got, they've changed the upper glove box lid to have that color through it and the door inserts have it. I personally like a little bit of contrast and I think that brown, even though it's not to everybody's tastes, it's quite a classic um, color in car interiors that sort of evokes a more luxurious feel. And um, it was sort of dark enough. I think that there's a bit light in areas, so it might get dirty. Um, But at the same time, I feel like this isn't the the BT50 that you're going to buy if you're going mud plugging all the time and you're throwing tools in it, whatever, because you'll break stuff. I think this is the one that, you know, the build site manager might drive or, you know, (laughs) it might be be a a couple, uh, some parents with a couple of kids or whatever that towing a caravan and they want something a little bit nicer to go with their CX-9 or something like that. So I think that that's the kind of buyer that you're looking for here. It's not really a, a workhorse spec and that's what we're seeing with a lot of these lifestyle utes is that, you know, they yes, they have a tray on them and they have a payload close to a tonne. Um, and they can tow three and a half tons as well, but they're never going. They're usually not really used for that sort of thing. So, yeah. And also, I, before we, um, before you all cut me off and tell me to leave, uh, we had a really fun expedition <laughs> up. Um, Le- I think it's called Lerderderg. I don't know. Some of the places around there sounded like um, jokes because it was like cobbledick <laughs> as well. 
And I was like, where am I? <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a state park out there called Lerderdurg. State Lerderdurg. Sorry, I keep doing, it's, it goes off in my head like that when I say it. Um, and we did some really cool off-roading trails up there. There's some great um, tracks and um, some – No, I, I don't think it was like hard, hardcore because obviously we drove a standard spec SP with – highway tires on it and we managed to go up but it was it was enough that you could you required a vehicle that had that sort of capability and as someone that hasn't done a whole lot of off-roading um it was actually really fun to do you know sharp descents and rocky climbs and creek crossings or river crossings or whatever and um the vehicle that i had actually was one was the only one on the on the media fleet that had like a suspension upgrade kit and a snorkel so it had like a 25 millimeter lift and a comfort tune so it actually rode much better than the standard one which i which i call out in the in the review and um it was just it just you just point it and shoot it. And so most of most of the activity, most of the driving that we did, you could just do it in um, high range four wheel drive, and then a few times we engaged low range um, and hill descent control just to sort of test the full gamut of what was on offer. Um, but that was the that was the other thing that impressed me that the SP has like a different body kit to other ones, so it's got a worse approach angle, and um, so there are some bits that you might be worried about scratching. But with with the car that we had anyway, with the extra ground clearance, it was um, it just walked up everything or walks down it and um i don't recall scratching or scraping anything either i just had the dirtiest car when we came back because i went full send through one of the puddles because i was just being silly but (laughs) it was was a it was actually quite a a, a good time so um i was very impressed with the capability and um you know maybe now i'm gonna start walking out in a flanny and khaki shorts and call myself an off-roader um yeah (laughs) where uh sorry just to be clear where were you off-roading again lerderdurg and we'll end it there thank you james wong thanks guys (laughs) all right there goes this week's podcast what cars have we got coming up next week scully so next week we have in melbourne a bmw m4 convertible uh that will also ruin your hair a bmw ix3 which is going to be very interesting actually the electric suv a kia sportage sx diesel a volkswagen arteon 206 R-Line shooting brake, which is some real niche car porn, actually. That's quite cool. Mm. And then we've got the Volkswagen Amarok W580. And I don't know if I'm meant to be whispering this or not, but a Kia EV6 GT line all-wheel drive, which is actually off the back of the launch. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that stacks up in the hands of our self-appointed EV expert. That's a joke. He actually is an EV expert, but poor Marek. Um, up in Sydney, we've got a Mazda 2 and a Hyundai Santa Fe. And then in Queensland, there is a Kona N-Line Premium and a Toyota Corolla Sedan Ascent Sport Hybrid. Whoever named that was paid by the word. <laughs> Have we got any launches next week, Will? Yeah, so uh, Scott mentioned the Kia EV6 launch, um, which will be in Canberra. And then after that, um, then after that, uh, there's a Mercedes C-Class event and also an event for the Mazda MX-5. And, of course, Scott's event in Portugal where he's being <laughs> flown across the world to drive a Porsche Cayman GT4 RS. Okay, well, just just let me get there. I need to get a clear COVID test, oh. and then I need to get on the plane. So let's just let's oh, get there first. Yourself. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> touch all the wood. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, thank you, Scott Colley and William Stopford. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.